Welcome to the Creating Wealth Show with Jason Hartman. You're about to learn a new slant on investing, some exciting techniques, and fresh new approaches to the world's most historically proven asset class that will enable you to create more wealth and freedom than you ever thought possible. Jason is a genuine, self-made multimillionaire who's actually been there and done it. He's a successful investor, lender, developer, and entrepreneur who's owned properties in 11 states, had hundreds of of tenants and been involved in thousands of real estate transactions. This program will help you follow in Jason's footsteps on the road to your financial independence day. You really can do it. And now, here's your host, Jason Hartman, with the complete solution for real estate investors. Welcome to episode 1537-1537. Thank you for joining us today. Well, as has been the case uh, for many months now, we are still in a crazy, crazy housing market. Listen to this. This is from an article in Housing Wire from a uh, prior guest that we've had on the show several times. Should get him back. He really does very good, deep, deep economic analysis. So I will invite him back onto the show. But in his article, he says, quote, when we compare this recession to the previous one, instead of a housing crash, we have a housing market that is outperforming every other sector in the world during the most impactful economic and health shock in recent modern history. That's a lot of hyperbole, but it's all true. Unquote. There you go, folks. Okay, another quote. New home sales in July increased 13.9%, crushing expectations. Crushing, meaning in a good way, you know? See, a Gen Xer or a baby boomer would view crushing as a bad thing. But if you talk to your millennial kids, they would say, dude, you're crushing it. That's great. Like, that's good. Okay. <laughs> so, so crushing expectations. Another report yesterday found that U.S. home prices rose 4.3% in June. By the way, folks, that was not a year-over-year number. That was in a month. Now, imagine what that means if you are using leverage. Uh, housing is just a, a phenomenal phenomenal asset class, isn't it? It's multi-dimensional. By the way, on our live stream last Sunday, remember we have weekly live streams, Coffee Talk with Jason, and uh, we will have one this Sunday that'll be interesting. We're going to talk about irrational, well, how to avoid the top three irrational mistakes that investors make when investing. And of course, we will be happy to answer your questions. I got to tell you something. I really like the live streams. It's a lot of fun. I like it when I get real-time questions and it challenges me. And, uh, you know, that's just fun. I really like doing it. So please join us on YouTube and Facebook every Sunday morning, 8 a.m. Pacific. Hey, early to bed, early to rise makes an investor healthy, wealthy, and wise. <laughs> See, I didn't say a man or a woman. I said an investor, 
right? How's that one? So it'll make you healthy, wealthy, and wise. So yes, Sunday morning, bright and early, 8 a.m. Pacific, 11 a.m. Eastern, Coffee Talk with Jason. And we will have a good guest this week, and I think you'll really like that one. So uh, that's coming up. Be sure to join us, and we can talk about this. We can answer your questions. You've always got a lot of great questions on really everything under the sun. And it would be uh, great to have some macro questions. We need, you know, remind me to say that on Sunday, that we want some macro questions, meaning instead of, and the, it's the, fine, the usual stuff is fine too, you know, what do you think of this refi option or that refi option? What do you think I should do? You know, get this type of loan, that type of loan to buy these properties, whatever, 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 right? Those are all fine and dandy. But how about some big macro things like, what do you think of this mega trend that is going to reshape the world and the investment landscape? I love talking about that stuff. See, I was really meant to be a futurist. Probably. That's probably what I was meant to be. Because I love talking about the future. As Yogi Berra said, the future ain't what it used to be. <laughs> right? Yogi Berra had all those great quotes, you know. Uh, the future ain't what it used to be. When you come to a fork in the road, take it. What else did he say? He had such great quotes like that. Ah, they were awesome. But the future ain't what it used to be. That's about the best one, I think, of, of his awesome quotes. So report. A report shows a record increase in San Francisco real estate listings as people continue. Well, what do they continue? Moving to more affordable cities. A few months ago, did you think we would see this kind of stuff? Now, it's easy to get a little thrown off, folks. It's easy to get thrown off here because there are some reports out and we have not agonized over them because we don't need to. We don't need to. Again, part of my job is to filter things for you. You know, we can't talk about everything. We've only got limited time. Hey, if you wanted to spend all day with me, I would be happy to do that. But, you know, you have other stuff to do. I know. It's not long enough. We got to have longer show. Maybe we should do two episodes a day. What do you think of that? You know, and if you think about it, Famous radio show hosts like Howard Stern and Rush Limbaugh, not that they have anything to do with each other, except that they're both very successful in the radio business. You know, they're on for three hours a day, aren't they? I don't know. I don't listen to Howard Stern, and I haven't listened to Rush in a long, long time. Kind of wonder what he's uh, what he's saying nowadays, you know. with uh, I mean, I haven't listened to him in years. But anyway, you know, 15 hours a week. Hey, I can go 15 hours a week. I'd love it. But you guys would say, Jason... As much as I love you and your super insightful things that you talk about on your show, I just don't have 15 hours a week for you. Okay. My feelings are a little hurt, but I'll get over it. I'll get over it. I promise. I'll get over it. Anyway, yeah, there's a lot of stuff to talk about. So we got to filter some things, right? And there are some reports about some of these cyclical markets seeing high activity, and a lot of buying activity. Hey, there's an old saying, folks. A rising tide floats all boats. And, you know, that is to some extent true. But the core trend, the underlying trend, the real strength of the market is in 
the prudent linear investments that we've always consistently recommended. Sure, you're going to see some of this stuff. And I only wish, I really wish, and no real estate index does this, but it would be really nice. Maybe one will come out of the pandemic, COVID-1984. Maybe we will see a new real estate index created, which will be segmenting real estate markets by high density, medium density, and low density. That would be brilliant. Remember, folks, you heard that here first. I'm sure you haven't heard that anywhere else. Because that's really the way we need to segment them now. How about segmenting real estate markets by riots with stupid, idiot, lawless protesters and pathetic mayors that have shirked their duty to protect their citizens and the businesses in their cities, mayors that should go to prison and be prosecuted for neglecting the citizens they were sworn to serve. You know what we need in this country, folks? We need, and I guess you probably can do it. I mean, I don't know if you can do it or not. Maybe there's a certain sort of like immunity. I don't really know. You know, for example, judges are immune. You can't sue a damn judge, which is kind of ridiculous in a way, because judges do all kinds of crazy things all the time. You know, many of them are corrupt, right? You know, fortunately, hopefully not too many of them are corrupt. But even if they're not corrupt, you know, they, they're they negligent. They don't read the, the documents in a case or they, you know, they have their own set of prejudices just like everybody does, Right. And so you can't sue a judge because a judge, I mean, you can, but it's like super high standard, I'm sure, right? Because they're generally immune because everybody would sue them when they didn't like the verdict, right? But you should be able to sue politicians. Now, I know that you sort of can, but I'm talking about like this, right? These mayors that have really caused damage to people, businesses, and people's property values in the cities where they've let their voters run lawless. I mean, folks, look, let's just face it. What is going on right now in some parts of the country is the largest Democrat campaign rally ever. Yep. It's the largest Joe Biden campaign rally ever. And they don't want to crack down on these people, these lawless thugs, because that's their voters. That's their voting block. It's their base, right? <laughs> it's, it's ridiculous. But what about all the people that have businesses in these areas? What about all the people that own homes in these areas that are seeing their homes go down in value, their businesses destroyed, and their lives totally interrupted? What about all the people who've been assaulted, okay, who have been harmed, you know, physically harmed, not just financially? Shouldn't you be allowed to sue these mayors for not enforcing the law of the land? I always thought, I mean, I've thought this for decades. Shouldn't we be allowed to sue politicians who don't keep their campaign promises? I mean, for example, if someone campaigns on a platform that says, you know, hey, I'm not going to raise taxes, or I'm only going to raise taxes on the rich just to screw them over, you know, whatever, whatever they say on any side of the aisle, doesn't matter, right? But when they get into office and they just totally neglect their constituency that put them there, shouldn't that constituency that was alienated 
shouldn't they be allowed to have some recourse against the politician who just lied to them or neglected them and didn't keep their campaign promises? Now, I know what you're thinking. I know what you're thinking. And I thought the same thing. You're thinking, well, Jason, look, in the real world, it's complicated. You know, it's complicated. I get it. I agree. It's complicated. Everything's complicated. That's why we have judges and juries and a court system to sort out the complexity. And I know what now I know what you're thinking, too. But Jason, the courts are so impacted and they're so full and, you know, it takes years to litigate a case and it's so expensive. You're absolutely right. It is. I know. I get it. And there's so much frivolous litigation. I know. Yes, that's all true. You're right. But what else is there? I mean, look, at if we're going to have a democracy and we're going to end, or a representative republic, I should say, this is a political week. And last week was a political week. You know, we had the Democratic National Convention. I mean, the Hippocratic National Convention with the hypocrites. And then now this week we have the Republican Convention. And, you know, they're hypocrites too. Okay, but less so. <laughs> so there you go. They're all hypocrites. But the point is, we should have recourse. And what we have now is we have re- redress against our government through protest. Okay, not like the ones that are going on now, because it's just silliness that's happening. It's ridiculous. But And we also have recourse and redress to the government through lobbyists, right? Through lobbying the government. But the problem is that's been just taken over by all the moneyed, big, disgusting, evil tech companies and other disgusting companies, too, like Monsanto. (laughs) You know, let me see. What are the most evil companies in the world? Well, there's Goldman Sachs. There's Monsanto. There's Google. There's Facebook. You know, these are all the companies and, you know, really Google, I should say Alphabet. But you know, these are all the companies that are like totally abusing their power. Oh, don't forget about Amazon. You know, oh, yeah, listen, and the Twitter. Oh, look at Twitter and their disgusting censorship. I mean, Twitter, shame on Twitter. Jack Dorsey, who do you seriously think you are? I mean, it's just ridiculous the way you censor, the way all of these platforms censor beliefs they don't agree with. I mean, they've like anointed themselves as God and government, jury and executioner, judge, jury and executioner. It's absolutely unbelievable. But it's not easy to solve these problems. But the one recourse that you really need to solve the problem is is the right to litigate. And the platforms become immune. Now, thank God for Trump's executive order recently, which lessened their power just a small smidgen, but it's a step in the right direction. Because all these platforms claim immunity under the uh, very inappropriately called CDA, the Communications Decency Act. What a farce that is. The complete opposite is true. Yes, they'll censor speech when it's against them, but or, or it's against their political beliefs, which are almost always entirely left-leaning, which, you know, is fine. I don't fault them for their beliefs. I defend them. Okay, they're certainly entitled to their beliefs. Remember what Voltaire said. I may disagree with you, but I will defend to the death your right to say it. And, you know, that's a principle that we all must believe and hold true. Because 
You know, you may not agree with what someone else is saying, but the problem is, if they can't say it, guess who's next? Yeah, that's you. You're next. Because then someone's going to disagree with you and not let you say what you want to say, right? That's the point of the First Amendment. So these are complex issues, obviously. But, wow, that is a major tangent alert. Jason, tangent alert! That was a big one. Where did we get off on that tangent? That was a big tangent. Okay, anyway. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, sorry about that, folks. We'll get back on track here. So people are leaving San Francisco. And yeah, oh yeah, we got off on that because of all the protests and the mayors that aren't doing their job and they've let their cities go to hell and become shitholes. Bleep that. Bleep. Bleep holes. (laughs) To use a Trumpian phrase. And, you know, San Francisco's one of them, Portland's another, and, you know, there are many others, okay? Not picking on those two, but, you know, these used to be really nice places, and it's really sad. But the article goes on to say, with remote work more popular than ever, amid companies like, here we go, Google and Facebook, now saying employees can work from home well into 2021, people are leaving San Francisco in throngs. A new Zillow report further supports that idea, showing a 96% year-over-year increase in local inventory listings. In other words, the listings, the number of properties available for sale and for lease, have skyrocketed by a 96% increase in these areas. And what we need is we need a new type of real estate index so we can really understand what's going on. Not just dividing it the way Jason Hartman does in his good old compared to what, linear, cyclical, and hybrid markets. But now we need to also divide in terms of density. Density, very important. But happy news, good news for you. The good news is, the good news is that mostly, Density and cyclicality align. Most cyclical markets, well, actually, no, I can't say that. It's, you know, a tortoise is always a turtle, but a turtle is not always a tortoise, right? Is that how that goes? I think it goes like that, right? It doesn't go like that. Always, if you have comments, questions, criticisms, whatever, go to jasonhartman.com slash ask, and you can correct me on anything, anything at all. Go ahead, go ahead, and ask your questions. We'd love to answer them on the show. Okay, but they got to be good questions, right? Or on the live stream. We can do it there, Sunday morning, on Facebook and YouTube. Boy, the companies I just got done criticizing, they'll probably cut me off, won't they? Okay, anyway. So fortunately, fortunately, the high-density markets where, you know, it's high-rise living or, you know, generally high-density, okay, and that varies, of course, are usually cyclical markets. So they're high-priced markets. Well, of course they are, because when real estate gets expensive, the building styles become more dense, and it becomes more densely populated as the real estate prices go up. So you can usually align those two. Most of the time, they align. So a cyclical market will mostly be a high-density market, and a high-density market will be even more commonly, a cyclical market. 
All right, so hope that helps. But there isn't a true index for this, right? For the density factor. I wish there was. So people are leaving San Francisco. Surprise, 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 as Gomer Pyle would say. Some of you don't know the reference, but it's an old TV show. One of these comments here on evil Twitter that censors everybody that doesn't agree with their left-wing ideas. Anyway, one of the comments is, there definitely is a suburban craze happening with mainly multifamily homes in San Francisco that are getting left in the dust, he says. Oakland and Berkeley, inner East Bay, hasn't changed much at all, and people are still buying single-family homes in San Francisco. Well, you know, sure they are, because they're low density, and there's not many people that can afford that stuff. It's pretty darn expensive, for sure, in all those areas you mentioned. But yes, people, there's a flight to lower density living. No surprise. We've been talking about that for months, and I was the first to predict it back in February. If you know someone who predicted it before me, go to jasonhartman.com slash ask and tell me I'm not the original. I'm not the original one. Maybe I'm not, but I'm the first one I know of. All right, so we've got to get to our guest. If you need us, reach out at jasonhartman.com or in the USA, call us at 1-800-HARTMAN. And also, congratulations to those of you who are checking out the Asset Protection webinar running this week, jasonhartman.com slash asset. So protect your assets, plan your estate. And this is the thing you've got to do in advance, folks. You've got to do it in advance. Now is the time before it's too late. And since it is a political week, let's talk about going red with that segment right now. It's my pleasure to welcome Joel Pollack to the show. He is senior editor-at-large and in-house counsel for Breitbart News Network, and he's author of several best-selling books, including his latest, Red November, Will the Country Vote Red for Trump or Red for Socialism? Joel, welcome. How are you? Great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's good to have you on the show. So everybody's wondering, this is a pretty crazy year, obviously, uh, how is the election going to turn out? <laughs> I mean, it's... Uh... Uh, well... It's anybody's race to win. But I do think that Donald Trump is gaining strength as we head into the fall. I think that the Black Lives Matter protests, which became riots in many places, really shocked many Americans. They led to calls to defund the police. They led to calls to rewrite history or do away with the history curriculum in Chicago and Illinois. And the, the riots in Portland, I mean, you we're seeing evidence all across the nation that Democratic rule is synonymous with a kind of disorder. And in fact, Joe Biden, who has tried to style himself for a while as a kind of moderate alternative to Bernie Sanders, has spent the last three or four months speaking as if he were Bernie Sanders. And he's promising things like revolutionary institutional changes and fundamentally transforming the country. He became a lot more radical after he won or at least secured his party's nomination. And that's because the campaign is concerned that they don't have the support of the Bernie Sanders wing of the party. So rather than pivot to the center and make, it, make a pitch to general election voters, Joe Biden has spent the last three months pandering to the far left and has not defended the police, has not stood up for law and order. He's offered very weak, tepid, and late statements condemning arson and looting. 
But in general, he's in favor of a kind of upheaval, and he is in favor of defunding the police. He wouldn't use the words defund, and they've put out statements saying we don't agree with this, but essentially they do because they're calling for redirecting funding away from law enforcement to other priorities that they say will be more effective. That is essentially what defund the police is all about. So Joe Biden has been saddled for the last two months with a kind of social unrest that the Democratic Party has encouraged, and it's become violent. And Donald Trump has taken the law and order side of the argument. And I I think that is a winning position in most cases. There's a long way to go still, but I think that Trump has the better of the arguments. You know, it's been said that this is uh, the largest political campaign rally ever, these riots. (laughs) Right. Well, according to the New York Times and Pew Research, and, you know, you can trust them, I, I suppose, as far as you want to, something like 25 million Americans participated in these protests. Now, I don't think that's accurate. But it tells you. Do you, do you that, think it's high or low? You said not accurate. Oh, it's much too high. It's much too high. We haven't even seen one crowd, I think, exceeding one million people. And if you think about how many major cities there are in the United States that have had protests, perhaps people tweeted something or retweeted something or put a black square on Instagram or something. I mean, I, I, if they count that as protest, maybe you could get that number. But this is not a massive nationwide protest in the way we see in other countries that have brought down governments. But in the minds of the left and the mainstream media, that's what it is. And they're using it to rally their activists, to rally the left, to rally the base. What they're also doing is they're frightening the middle. And the iconic image of the McCloskeys in St. Louis defending their home with a pistol and an AR-15 semi-automatic rifle while a mob walks across their private property, that's become, for many people, the summary of of where we are as a nation, where the Democrats essentially are leading the mob up to the door. And they're saying, you can't call the police. Oh, and by the way, we're going to take your weapons away. You can't have that AR-15. In California, it's already illegal to buy one. And you can't exercise your Second Amendment rights, nor can you call the police. And we're going to come and take everything you have because it's part of our reparations agenda or it's part of revolutionary institutional change. That's a frightening image. And Joe Biden is running on the wrong side of that image. Joe Biden is running on the idea that America is systemically racist and that we need profound changes. This is not the same Joe Biden people have known for half a century in politics. This is not the handshaking, backslapping, hair sniffing, you know, well, maybe he's still on the hair sniffing. <laughs> What's that? Child molesting. I mean, he's such a weirdo. Yeah, whatever. He's just a weird guy. Yeah. But it, it, this is not the same Joe Biden. In fact, at the, at the start of the campaign, Biden said he was not a moderate. Jill Biden, his wife, seems convinced that he has to portray himself as a moderate. She keeps using the term moderate. But he rejected that term early in the campaign or right before he joined the campaign. I think it was in April of 2019. He said, I'm not a moderate. I wish they would have called me a moderate all those times I ran in Delaware. I've just been a liberal. And then he said... I'm an Obama-Biden Democrat. So he's basically running as the party man and has been the party man from the beginning. The problem is that the party has moved so far to the left that he's moved with it rather than standing up against this stuff. And I think Democrats are in danger of taking a winnable election when there's a lot of economic uncertainty, frustration about the coronavirus, rightly or wrongly, because the entire world is dealing with the same problem. But there is a willingness, I think, an openness in the electorate to a different leadership, a different direction, 
And Biden is squandering the opportunity by throwing his weight behind radicalism and unrest rather than incremental change or just responsible leadership. I don't think people actually want change as much as they want to return to normal. And, and in a sense, that's how Biden pitched his campaign in the beginning. But now he's thrown that aside for the sake of revolutionary institutional change. Again, again those are his words. Uh, he said that on a podcast with Andrew Yang back in May, and he's said many things similar since then. Yeah, yeah we had Andrew Yang on the show before. So, um, wow. Yeah, yeah. That's, that, that makes you uh, better than the Democratic National Convention. They did not schedule him as a speaker, apparently. Oh, yeah. Maybe they'll change that, but he's upset about it. Well, you know, we've had Ron Paul, Pat Buchanan, Andrew Yang, Ben Carson. They've all been on. Uh, so, uh, you know, we, we, we like to have opposing viewpoints, even when we don't, you know, I don't agree with universal basic income, but I wanted to hear what he said about it. So, <laughs> you know. Well, it's good. It's good of you to have that kind of a forum. Very few people are able to do that. So, you know, that, that's that's very important. And, you know, kudos to Andrew Yang and the others who, who came on the show. Yeah, yeah. But well, I, I think that they, they've been shut out of their own party's dialogue. I mean, that's the point. Andrew Yang is one of the more moderate members of the presidential field, and he's not given a slot on the stage, the virtual stage at the Democratic National Convention. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, that's a, that's a club. It's definitely a club. But uh, But yeah, we... You know, even though we're just a small media outlet, we like to practice something called journalism, which is uh, sadly missing <laughs> nowadays in the yeah. mainstream media, that's for sure. So, um, you know, that, that's really interesting what you say, but I guess it really comes down to what is the biggest voting block, right? Is it going to be these these radical revolutionary people who really don't even know what they're protesting about, most of them? Or is it going to be the standard law and order types that, uh, you know, Trump is appealing to. I mean, do we really live in a country of a bunch of anarchists and hoodlums? I mean, I can't imagine that, but uh, maybe we do. Maybe that's maybe the tide is turning. Unfortunately, that's pretty scary. But what are your thoughts? I don't know whether these protests translate into votes. Keeping in mind, most of these protests involve people who live in Democrat-run cities and states. The, the biggest and most crowded protests were probably here in Los Angeles. And you know, we basically live in a one-party state in Los Angeles. So unless those participants move to Nevada in the next few weeks, where they would have to vote by mail anyway, I don't know what the effect is going to be. You could see an effect in other places, but I have to think that in swing states like Colorado, let's say, for example, Colorado has gone Democratic for the last several elections, but it's still thought of as a swing state or a battleground state. And certainly there's an important Senate race there. But the mob that came out after the George Floyd killing in Minneapolis did a lot of damage in Denver. They actually attacked the public library. I think they vandalized it. There was one library, the name escapes me now, it may have been Denver, it may have been another city, but they set a fire inside the library, which was quickly extinguished. But you can't have that sort of spectacle and expect to impress the swing state voters. I think that most of the activity and activism has been in cities and states entirely controlled by Democrats, almost to the point where you could look at the Black Lives Matter movement as an internal revolution on the left, where they're angry and they tell their supporters they should channel their anger into voting instead of looting. That's the more responsible leadership, at least, says that. But who are they voting for? Same people, same Democrats. What they are doing is they're defeating the old liberal guard. So the Elliott Engels of the world are losing their seats, the Joe Crowleys and so forth. 
and they're being challenged from the far left by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and others like that. You have a woman who just won a primary in Missouri, and I forget her name, but she defeated the long-term incumbent, uh, Representative Clay, who really, that's been sort of a family seat for generations. And again, same story. She was a Black Lives Matter uh, activist. Uh, Cori Bush is her name. I just had to double check that. Yeah, and she was a black, she led Black Lives Matter protests. So that's where you see their political impact. But again, that's an internal, it's within the Democratic Party and the Democratic primary. And in many ways, that has benefited Republicans because Republicans have been able to say, look how radical the Democrats have become. You can't vote for a party that elevates these radical people to leadership. And and I would agree. It's really, they've just gone off the rails, it seems like. Talk to us, though, about, uh, you know, the, the problem is the left controls almost all of the media, you know, and, and I'm including social media in that. You know, the, these big tech companies are so rich, they can afford to be liberal. You know, I, I just love the hypocrisy of all the, the social media companies or just big tech companies in general, how, you know, it's do what I say, not what I do. None of none of these people that run those companies live in the way they suggest everybody else live, of course. That's the crazy world we live in. I mean, you know, they control what we see, what search results we get, what shows up in our news feeds. It is really scary. I mean, Twitter is insane. I cannot believe what they're doing. It's it's absolutely Fahrenheit 451, Nazi book burning. It's just craziness. If the message doesn't get out, any sort of a balanced message, then, you know, people will respond. You know, what are your thoughts? You hit on a topic I, I enjoy talking about. You almost took my favorite line away from me, which is that socialism is a luxury good. Yeah. You know, you said you, said you have to be rich enough to be liberal. I, I like to say socialism is a luxury good. Right. You can afford to dream about redistribution when you're not really going to suffer too badly for it. I mean, obviously, if you're wealthy, they're going to take your stuff. But the wealthy, first of all, find ways to evade the state. They find ways to evade taxes and so forth. And secondly, they can probably live without some of the things they're likely to get asked to give up. Whereas the practical results of socialism for the ordinary working man and woman are just horrific, horrendous. And you can see it now. I mean, the European countries, which we are told by our liberal betters in the media, did so much better than us in dealing with coronavirus, are now stuck with a much worse off economy. They're not going to rebound at the same rate we are. They're not adding jobs the way we are. And we have a dynamic society because it's a capitalist society. Socialist societies are not dynamic. They cannot respond. They cannot innovate. They take initiative away from the individual. And as a result, they leave everybody poorer than they would have been otherwise. So it's only if you have all your material needs that you could possibly imagine catered for ad infinitum that you can think that everyone else should enjoy the same luxury that you do. The same, I suppose, right to idleness. And we're seeing a lot of that in the streets where the masses of protesters aren't made up of poor people, especially the looters. You know, they're not raiding uh, Ferragamo shoe stores and Dior jewelry stores to look for bread. Many of these people are well off. They arrive at the looting locations in cars. You know, they they have generous stimulus payments or unemployment benefits they can draw on. Anyway, the direction the country is headed in after this is probably going to be one of more struggle, no matter who wins. 
But the struggle is winnable if Trump wins. It is not winnable if Biden wins. Now you ask who's going to turn out. I think that enough Americans see through the media that the media have actually discredited themselves so much that there are enough Americans who simply stop paying attention and who understand what's going on and who will turn out to vote for Trump because they understand the danger of what we're living through right now. If people turn out and Joe Biden wins rather than Trump, it's either going to be because Trump does something additional that's particularly egregious between now and Election Day, because I don't think anything he's done yet or said or tweeted is enough to warrant him losing office. He's certainly been controversial, but at times that's been a necessary tool. Certainly his supporters think it's been necessary for him to be brash or tough to get things done. But if we end up in a situation where Joe Biden wins after all of these riots and after the unrest and so forth, then perhaps the country has been lost for a while. This is something we'll look back on and we'll have to look for the roots of the transfer of power in 10, 20 years of indoctrination at schools and Hollywood culture and so forth. I do think it's likelier that Trump will win right now, mildly likelier. Again, I can't really predict the outcome, but I do think he's gaining momentum and Joe Biden is losing momentum precisely because it seemed for a while, especially in late July or so, that Biden was a shoe in to win. And once the reality of a Biden presidency in these circumstances became clear, I think many people suddenly realized they had to save the country by voting for Trump. Why in these circumstances? Because Biden wouldn't have beaten Trump in in a fair and square contest. If Biden wins now, after all of the unrest and violence, it would amount to rewarding political violence. Once you reward political violence in any political system, it never leaves the system. Violence will never leave the system if it is rewarded. And we can look at countless examples of that around the world. But there's a reason that the French like to riot. Okay, (laughs) it's in French political culture. We don't want that in our political culture, but we're going to get it if Biden wins in in this context when there's been so much violence and Trump supporters are intimidated, physically intimidated, threatened. The media are intimidated. They won't cover these protests properly because they get assaulted when they do. So I think there's going to be enough of a backlash. I think people are seeing through the media, but we'll have to see. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, I mean, if if Biden were to win or if someone were to vote for Biden, I think they're really voting for the VP as president because Biden is just not fit to hold office. Polit- politics aside, the the man is, he's just lost it. When is he going to debate Trump? I, I want to see that. I mean, I, I, is this the first year we're going to not have a debate because the Dems are so afraid that Biden can't withstand a debate? Just where are the debates? I mean, we're 90 days out, right? Or less than that. Yeah, I I don't know. Look, I think there's a danger that Republicans talk themselves into believing that Biden is unable to debate. Look, we've seen him debate on 11 occasions. He's been able to stand up straight for an hour or two. And I think he would do the same with Trump. The difference is Trump will take the fight to him in a way that the other Democrats didn't, with rare exceptions. And the other interesting thing about it is if these debates drag on at all, you know, I think they'll be bad for Biden. Biden never came to the spin room once. I write about that in Red November. He never came to the spin room the way the other candidates did in any of the debates. And I think it's because it was simply too taxing for him physically. Uh So I agree with you. I think he's not he's not 100 percent there. 
But I do think he can stand up on his own two feet for 90 minutes or two hours. And that's going to that's going to be called a victory if he does it. All right. So he can pull it off for 90 minutes. Then, OK, interesting. Well, uh, anything else you want us to know? I mean, I think this could turn out like 2016, where, you know, the, the people on the right were just so fed up with being called names and being shouted down. They just kind of bit their tongue and went to the voting booth. And, you know, that's why it surprised everybody. And I predicted that would happen, by the way, uh, in 2016. You know, I wasn't sure it would happen, but I thought it would happen. I thought there was a decent chance of it, and it it certainly did. That might happen again because, I I mean, you know, that it, it seems that the left is more willing to engage in a fight a lot of the people on the right are just, you know, they just want to run their business and have their life. And, and, you know, sadly, that's one of their mistakes, I think, is that they're not fighters. They might fight in wars and stuff, but, you know, they they don't want to just argue with people that are just shouting them down on college campuses and, and stuff. You know, a few of them will, but largely not. Uh, any thoughts? Well, I, I think, as with most things, we'll have to see. But I don't think that we can choose a political culture, or let me let me rephrase that, I don't think we should embrace a political culture where all of us have to be fighting all the time. Yeah, That's really not how our system is supposed to work. It is how other systems work. It's how socialist democracies work, because socialism is about redistribution rather than growth. So there's always a fight over who gets a bigger slice of the pie. As a result, in, in many countries, even ones that, let's say, Americans like, for example, Israel. Israel is routinely paralyzed by strikes. And that is because there's almost a competition in Israel among various political groups to show how much of the country they can shut down, how long they're willing to hold out for their demands. And that's what happens when people are always on that sort of war footing internally. We have bad political divisions. They're almost worse in Israel. And what keeps them from flaring up in Israel more than they do is the perceived external threat from other enemies against which the entire country unites. But in peacetime, Israelis really go at each other politically. And I've been in Israel during some of these strikes. It's unbelievable how bad some of them get. So that's what happens under a quasi-socialist system. And Israel is still very much sort of a social democracy, even though it's been run by the right for quite a while. Yeah. I think I think we shouldn't want people to stop attending to other affairs. We don't want people to leave the realm of politics. Alexis de Tocqueville uh, in Democracy in America warned against that. But he also said the genius of America is that people pursue their self-interest in, with a public spirit. And so that's what we want. We want people to be willing to defend themselves and so forth. We want people to understand where their prosperity comes from and, and to appreciate how we have to defend it at the ballot box, contribute to political campaigns, come out and volunteer, and all of that. All that is good. But we can't really survive as the same kind of society we are now, as a prosperous, free, open society, if politics occupies a huge amount of our attention. Mm-hmm. Good stuff. Well, give out your website and tell people where they can find the books and such. Well, I obviously write for Breitbart.com, but if you want to bring if you want to buy Red November, you can buy it anywhere books are sold, you know, Amazon, Barnes & Noble. The publisher is Center Street. So Center Street has a central website that will take you to any retailer you want. The book, again, is Red November. Will the country choose Red for Trump or Red, or red for Socialism? Excellent. Joel Pollock, thanks for joining us. Thank you.
Thank you so much for listening. Please be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss any episodes. Be sure to check out the show's specific website and our general website, HartmanMedia.com, for appropriate disclaimers and terms of service. Remember that guest opinions are their own, and if you require specific legal or tax advice or advice in any other specialized area, please consult an appropriate professional. And we also very much appreciate you reviewing the show. Please go to iTunes or Stitcher Radio or whatever platform you're using and write a review for the show. We would very much appreciate that. And be sure to make it official and subscribe so you do not miss any episodes. We look forward to seeing you on the next episode. Oh,